give you a minute to turn to Malachi chapter 3. The Bible's under the chairs in front of you if you need one. And Malachi 3 is on page 952 in those Bibles. 952. As we've said probably every time in this series, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, right before the book of Matthew then in the New Testament. We'll have just a couple more weeks, maybe one more week in this book. I'm going to go ahead and read this section before doing an introduction. Malachi 3, starting in verse 13. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On that day I will prepare my own possession and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Malachi 3, 13, returns to the same complaint that we already saw at the end of chapter 2. And if you still have your Bible open, you can look back up there to chapter 2, verse 17. And there it tells, tells us, it says, God speaking to the people, it says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, How have we wearied him? And that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, Where is the God of justice? The complaint then that is echoed and brought back to here is essentially this. The righteous appear to suffer. The wicked appear to be blessed. Where is the God of justice? Are you even doing anything about this? God addressed it then, and we saw it in that passage a couple weeks ago, dealt with a couple other issues, and then comes back to it again now. And here, the people are essentially saying, it is useless to serve God. They say, what profit is it to serve God? What are we getting out of it? Why are we even serving him? There's these others that are, that are wicked and, and they appear to be blessed. So why are we even trying? I want to ask you, do you ever feel that way? Do, do you ever feel sort of like what they're feeling? That it's, it's useless to serve God? Do you ever think thoughts like this? Why am I trying so hard? Why am I trying so hard to follow God? These other people I know are not, and their life appears just as good, if not better, than my own. So why am I trying so hard? In fact, you might be wondering, why am I not in bed right now? Although it's kind of late in the morning. This would be sleeping in, right? But you might still be thinking, why am I not just in bed right now? Why, why am I even carving this out Sunday after Sunday? My life appears not to benefit from it. Why am I carving out time every morning to read God's word? And yet my life is so hard. Why am I holding myself to a high standard for a spouse? Those that are single are maybe wondering why I've set the standard of wanting like a godly husband, a godly wife, and these are the things I'm looking for, and now I'm single long past when I thought I would, and I have friends that did not hold to those standards, and they're married. Why am I doing this? Why am I disciplining and discipling and having hard conversations with my kids when I could just check out? Why am I pouring myself into homeschooling my kids? 
many here are in that, in that environment, and, and yet they're struggling. And you think, is this, is this useless? Sometimes it feels like that. And that's what they're expressing here. And if you ever feel like that, I want you to lean into this passage. Because God puts words to that, and then he addresses it. So, we'll go through this and the pattern that we've come to expect in Malachi. We've seen it, this is the sixth time, I believe, that we've seen this pattern where there's a claim, and then a question, and an explanation. And so the claim and question will hit briefly and give most of our time to the explanation. The claim is essentially this, God saying to the people, your words have been arrogant against me. Arrogant. That's the translation I'm reading from, the New American Standard. Other translations use the word harsh, or hard, or stout. It's essentially saying, you have lobbied forceful, hard accusations against me, is what the Lord is saying. Now there's a refreshing, raw honesty that we often see displayed in Scripture as people bring their doubts, their complaints, their questions to the Lord. We see that in places like Job. Many times throughout Job, this is one example, Job 13, 24, where Job says to the Lord, why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? We see that, we see that in the Psalms, and yet something different is happening here, where he says, your words are arrogant against me. And I think what it is, is that in Job's case and throughout the Psalms, it's a doubt, a complaint that's mixed with faith. Somebody's saying, God, I trust you, but I don't understand this, and this is hard, and why is this happening, and why are you allowing it, why are you hiding your face? And yet that's apparently not what's happening here. It's a hardness against God, about God, uh, not mixed with faith, not a doubt that's mixed with faith, but just lobbying accusations against God. And so God says, your words have been arrogant against me. And then once again, in this pattern, they say, how? What have we spoken against you? There's a claim and there's a question. They say, what have we spoken against you? Again, it could just be a rhetorical device, a teaching tool throughout here, or it could be that the people were oblivious. God is saying, you're arrogant against me. And they're saying, what are we doing? What are we doing? So they ask this question, and then the rest of the passage, and where we'll give the majority of our time, is walking through an explanation. God says, this is what you're doing. This is the way in which you've been arrogant against me. And here's the problem with that. So he does that in three parts. But overall, the explanation really can be summarized this way. You wrongly say it's useless to serve God. They're saying it's useless to serve God, and we'll come back to that language. He says, but you're wrong in that. You're wrong in that. And he addresses that. And so that's where if you sometimes feel like that, it's useless. Why am I doing this? I'm wasting my time. He's going to address it in this passage. So let's look at that specific complaint, this sense that it's useless to serve God. Put your eyes again on verse 14. It says, you have said it is vain to serve God. Vain, that word has the idea of useless, of futile, as wasting your time. They're saying it's vain, it's worthless. What profit is it? They're basically saying, we're, we're going through these religious motions, we're doing the stuff, and, and yet it doesn't appear like we're profiting from it. It appears useless. It's a waste of time to serve God. One author puts it this way. They claim they gained nothing by serving the Lord, but in reality they weren't serving Him. They were merely going through the motions out of religious obligation. Which is why they say, there's no profit in it. It doesn't appear to be benefiting them. Even the sense of mourning over their sin. Notice it says, at the end of verse 14, it says, you have 
we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts. They're going through the motions of appearing sad about their sin, but it's just the motions, appearing to walk in mourning. I want you to picture maybe like a kid, and maybe you've seen this in a kid before, that gets in trouble, and they get reprimanded, and they say they're sorry, and they're like trying to put on their sorry face, right, and the tears, but then they're like looking around, like is anybody noticing? And if nobody's noticing, then they just go back. That is a, it is a pretense of mourning. And essentially that's what they're doing. They say, we've walked in mourning, but what are we getting out of it? What, what profit is there? We don't appear to be benefiting from it. And then it introduces another group here, really. Verse 15, he says, So now we call the arrogant blessed, these doers of wickedness. So there's really two groups, and then there's a third that will come up in the next section. There's this group that is openly wicked, the doers of wickedness. And they appear to be blessed. Their life appears to be going well. So then there's this other group that we saw first that is jealous of that group. They're comparing, and they're saying, Hey, we're going through these motions we're mourning over our sin, but we don't appear to be benefiting from it. And so why not just be like this other group that is not even trying to follow God? There'll be a third group that comes up in a moment of those that fear the Lord. But these ones are making this comparison. And there's coming to the conclusion it is, is useless to serve God. What is going on in the heart of a person? What might be going on in your heart when you feel that sometimes? That it's useless to serve God. You're, you're serving Him and... And you're wondering if you're wasting your time. I, I think there's maybe three things going on there. The first might be a wrong expectation of timing. A wrong expectation of timing. Uh, essentially concluding, if I can't see a benefit now, then there is no benefit. I must see it now, or there is no benefit. Uh, it, think of the analogy of somebody who decides they're going to start working out. They want to get fit. And so they get gym clothes, they get a gym membership, they get up early one day and they go and they hit the gym hard. What are they going to feel like the next day? awful, right? They wake up and they're like, this is not reaping the benefits I thought. If anything, I feel worse today than I did before. What is the benefit of working out? I hurt in places I did not know that I had muscles. What is the problem with that? We'd say, well, your timeline's too short. Of, of course you hurt now. The benefits are not reaped in a day. It's, it's over time. Think of that uh, applying to the text we saw last week where it was talking about uh, giving, and if somebody has the conclusion, like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give on Sunday, and then I'm going to open my bank account Monday, and I better see a blessing in there. Well, that would be distorting the passage, anyways, and making it about greed and personal gain. But, but it's, also, it's also saying that that benefit has to be immediate. Rather than this mindset of, I'm going to cultivate an attitude of generosity out of gratefulness for what God's given me, and to break the stranglehold of materialism, and because I want to bless others, and Lord, I'm going to trust you to provide. And, and over years of that approach, we, we recognize that it all belongs to God, and it changes our view of money. But that is a long game, not a short outcome. So sometimes it is that. It's a wrong expectation of timing. Sometimes it's a wrong motivation for serving, essentially saying, I'm going to do X so that God will do Y. I'm going to do this because then God will do this. I, I will get something from it. It changes the motivation really from a God-centered motive of I want to please God. I want to do what's right because it honors the Lord and it brings him glory. And I'm going to trust him for the results. But, but I'm not doing it for those results. I'm doing it because it's what honors the Lord. And, and sometimes we, we take that all out and we, we, 
make it like a formula. I will do X and God will do Y. And then what happens when God doesn't do what you're expecting there? It's God's fault. And you blame God. And you feel like what's expressed here. I'm going to give you an example of how this might work. It's what some have labeled the relationship prosperity gospel. So the prosperity gospel is this idea of you know, saying, if I give, then God will bless and I will become rich. Or if I follow God, I will be healthy and I will be rich. It's, it's all about personal prosperity and it distorts the gospel. We talked about that some last week. The relationship gospel, uh, prosperity gospel is sort of a tweak on that. It's saying, I'm going to do what God says I should do, even if it's you know, wise stuff. I'm going to seek wise counsel from parents. I'm going to seek wise counsel from other mature people. I'm not going to set my happiness on this person. I'm going to prioritize godliness uh, over appearance. I'm going to maintain wise physical boundaries. They take all these wise rules and they say, I'm going to do that. And then God will give me a spouse. And he will give me a godly spouse. And then what happens is somebody follows those steps and they stay single long past than they thought they would. And so they start to blame God. And they say, why did I even do this? It is useless. Or they do get married, and marriage is harder than they thought it was going to be. Or their spouse is unfaithful. And again, those same thoughts come in. God, why, why did I even go through these steps if you did not provide this? Rather than, this is what honors the Lord in my single life. These are the wise steps towards pursuing a relationship. I'm going to take these steps because they honor God. This is an aspect of wisdom. But Lord, I'm going to trust you to provide or to help me to be content even if it's hard. That is the difference there. What is the, the motivation for serving? Not I'm going to do X so that God will do Y, but I'm going to do X because it pleases God and it honors him. And the third and somewhat related is perhaps a wrong view of the benefit of following God. Thinking, again, if I do this, God will bless me in this particular way. Here's an example. This is from several years ago. It was, the, it was a receiver for the Buffalo Bills. I won't use his name for the sake of respect here. Uh, but this was in 2010. He dropped a game-winning pass uh, in the end zone that could have won the game. And he took to Twitter afterwards, and this is what he put, uh, all caps, extra exclamation marks included. Um, I praise you 24-7, six exclamation marks. And this is how you do me. You expect me to learn from this? How? I'll never forget this, ever. Thanks, though. I love the passive-aggressive thanks, though, at the end. Um, now, to his credit, the next day he said, after getting a lot of heat from this, like, Okay, I was wrong, I was just passionate, you know, those kind of things. But it's this sort of mindset of, I praise you 24-7, and you won't let me catch a football to win a game? Right? It's, it's a conclusion of, if I praise you, if I serve you, then this will go well in my life. And it's a facet of that. Did you expect me to learn from this? I'll never forget this. Now, we don't want to be too hard on him because I think we often kind of have that same mindset in our life. It shows up in different ways. We say, Lord, I follow you. I go to church. I praise you. And you've allowed my kid to be sick or my own body to hurt or my job to suffer or this relationship to fail. 
And it's as if we have this conclusion in our mind is if, if I serve God in this way, then my life will go well. And we don't have a straight line promise there. And in fact, it's to, it's to really put ourselves at the center of that service. So, that's what they're expressing. And I think we often see it in our own hearts, the sense of it is useless to serve God. And he gives, he gives his response in two parts. The first part of the response is that the Lord points out that he notices those who fear him. He notices those who fear him. Picking up in verse 16, it's the first time that there's some positive response in this book where some people are responding well to this correction. Verse 16, it says, Those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the Lord gave attention and heard it. And the book of remembrance was written before him. For those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name, they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. So in contrast to those who are saying it is useless to serve God, there's this group that is fearing the Lord. It's mentioned twice here. And they're talking about the Lord to one another. It's spilling over in their interactions with one another. Don't you just love those people that when you're with them, like the things of God just like are on their lips naturally. Not in a preachy, fake way, but it's just an overflow of who they are. And you leave encouraged. You leave loving God more from spending time with them. These people are fearing the Lord and they're speaking to one another about him. And the Lord sees. He, he gives attention. He heard it. He even wrote it in this book of remembrance. It, it could be that nobody else will notice your quiet faithfulness to God. It could be that you're in a marriage where your spouse is not a believer and they, they don't notice nor do they care about your quiet faithfulness to God. It could be that your friends at school maybe don't know Christ. Maybe they're indifferent to your desire to pursue Christ. Maybe they even mock you for being you know, uptight or they confuse your conscience with judgmentalism. You may swim hard against the currents of the culture and be labeled a culture warrior when you're just trying to be faithful to Jesus, it's possible that no one will see and no one will notice but God. And is that enough? That audience of one, of if God sees, then that's enough, even if nobody else does. It has to be, because sometimes others won't see. And that spills over into work. It spills into a lot of areas. There's... Two passages in the New Testament that apply this, really that same idea to the work environment. 1 Peter 2, 18 to 19 says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. And that would carry over to employee, employee, employer. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Implied in here is that sometimes we'll have employers that are good and gentle, sometimes those that are unreasonable. For this finds favor. Not necessarily favor with the coworkers. Or favor with your boss. It's not a guarantee of a promotion or a reward. Although often that might happen because of faithful work. But certainly not a promise. No, not favor with them but with God. If for the sake of conscience toward God. A person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Conscience towards God. Favor from God. Him seeing, noticing. Ephesians chapter 6, 5-6 to six, has a similar idea. Slaves, which again, I think the parallel would be employer-employee, be obedient to those who are your master, masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Obedience to the boss 
as to Christ, for Christ, not for them, because they might be those that are unreasonable. That is possible. Not by way of eye service, just giving an appearance as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. That's the mindset of one that says, I don't care if anybody else notices, they might not, but God, I want to do this for you. I want to do this for you. It says God notices, God sees. It even uses the language of a book of remembrance. The end of verse 16, you see that in there. A book of remembrance was written before him. It's a practice of ancient kings that they would write down or have written down by a scribe uh, a book of remembrance uh, of great things that happened or people that served them. You think of the example in Esther. Maybe you're familiar with that book. In uh, the book of Esther, there's a man named Mordecai who's the uncle of the main character, Esther, and early in the book, he learns of a plot to assassinate the king, this Persian king, not a Jewish king, a Persian king, King Ahasuerus. And he, he intervenes and he puts a stop to it. And that's written down in the book of remembrance. And then a few chapters later, the king is having a sleepless night. He asks the book to be read and he reads about this. And he ends up rewarding this Mordecai then. That's this idea of a book of remembrance. It's vivid language to say that God remembers even if nobody else sees, even if nobody else notices, even if it feels useless. It's not, because God remembers. And then look at verse 17. He says, of them, and we'll see that it applies to us, he says, they will be mine. On the day that I prepare my own possession, we will belong to God. We are his. The language there is of a special possession, even a special treasure. It's used in 1 Chronicles 29 of David who had a, a storehouse of treasures, but there was a special possession of prized objects that he ends up giving to the work of the temple there in that, in that context. But it's this idea of a prized possession of God's. And that same language is repeated in the New Testament, not just of the people of Israel and Malachi, but of you if you've trusted in Christ. And I want you to see that in a few places in John's gospel. John 6, 37 to 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me. If you've, if you've come to him, it's because you were first given to him. There's a divine work where, where you're viewed as God's, and you're described as this possession that the Father gives to the Son. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. You never have to wonder, if I come to God, will he want me? Yes, he will not cast you out. But even behind the scenes, there's a work that he's doing. For I have come down, this is Jesus speaking, from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. There will none, be none that are lost along the way. Those that have been given from the Father to the Son will come to him, none will be lost. Chapter 10, 27 to 29. My sheep, this is Jesus again, hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Another statement of assurance, of security, rather we should say, that of all those that are his, they're, they're given to Christ, none will be lost. And then one more, in John 17, what we call the high priestly prayer, just before his death, Jesus prays this, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. He describes again those who come to him as, as belonging to God, 
and given to Christ. You belong to him. One more vivid passage, this time out of Isaiah, that brings these two both together of this book of remembrance and belonging. Isaiah 49, 16 says, Behold, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hands. I want you to think for a moment. Look at, look at your hand. I want you to imagine a name written there. Here on a Sunday, you might, you might meet people, and 10 seconds later, you're like, I have no idea what that person's name is. Right? But imagine you have a name carved into your hand. Would you ever forget that name? Could, could you ever forget it? Could not. And that's the language that's used here of God's people, inscribed on the palm of his hands, never forgotten, never, never overlooked, never lost, but belonging to him. You must know whose you are. You belong to him. We all have this desire for belonging. Why do people join gangs and join fraternities? They want to belong. Why do third culture kids struggle? Third culture, we have to think of it as like missionary kids who maybe are from America but grow up overseas, don't quite feel like they fit in either place. They don't have a sense of belonging, and that's often hard for them. Why is loneliness and isolation so painful? Because it brings up these questions of where do I belong? If you've trusted in Christ, you belong to him. And the church ought to be an expression of that, of all these people who belong to Christ and then are belonging to one another. But churches fail at that. We struggle at that. But you belong to Christ. How do we apply this? I'm going to give you three ways. We've already seen these throughout, so it'll be more of a, of a rehash. Oh, ooh, no, I skipped one point. You guys are probably thinking that if you saw your hand out. The, the last thing, verse 18, and then it actually spills over to chapter 4, he will distinguish between those who serve him and those who do not they're looking around now and saying, I see no difference. A group that's going through the religious motions, and then they look at those that are just outwardly wicked. They say, I see no difference. They appear to be blessed. But in verse 18, he says, no, God will distinguish. He says, you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. It may feel like there's no difference now, but... That will not go on forever. Psalm 73 deals with that same question, and I want you to see the same answer there. Psalm 73, starting in verse 3, says, I was envious of the arrogant, playing this comparison game and seeing the arrogant, and it says that I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There are no pains in their death. Their body is fat, meaning they've got all that they need. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. He goes on, Behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain, that's the same word, right? Vain, useless. Why am I doing this? In vain, it's useless. I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. It's vain. Why am I doing this? But, the psalm goes on. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. It goes on to describe that. It may appear like there's no difference now. But that will not be so in the end. There will be a day of judgment. Where God will distinguish. And on the one hand will be that group we saw in here that fears the Lord 
They see their own sin. They, they, they're not blind to it. They know they've sinned against God and they're trusting in him. In the Old Testament, that involved sacrifices, saying, God, would you cover my sin even as I sacrifice this animal, but I know that I've sinned, but it looks ahead to the perfect sacrifice of Christ and now that's what we look back to. Say, God, I fear you. I, I respect you and I know I've failed, but I'm trusting in Jesus that he obeyed in my place and I'm trusting in him and that's our hope. But those that are just going through the religious motion or those that are just openly defying him and one day we'll have to give an account. And that is an eternal account. Hell is real and it's scary. And that's laid out here as this distinguishing that God will do. Now, how do we apply this? So three, three ways. We've kind of seen it all throughout. First, comparison is the thief of joy. Remember, that's what this group, that's what starts all of this. This group that's going through the motions are comparing their life experiences, particularly to those that seem wicked and life is going great. And so they conclude that this is useless. And when we get caught up in comparisons, we'll come to the same conclusion. Because there's always somebody whose life appears to be going better. They have more money, they have a nicer house, they have a newer car, they've got more friends, on and on and on. Rather than... God, thank you for what you've given me. And I want to be faithful. I want to be a faithful steward. Second, serve God without the expectation of present reward. Again, they thought, if I can't see a benefit now, then there's no profit. Now, a caveat with this is that we've seen throughout Scripture that there are often tangible benefits, even in this life, from, from following God's ways. Galatians 6 says that we will reap what we sow. The whole book of Proverbs is built on this cause and effect from wisdom or folly. Following the way of wisdom generally goes better than following the way of folly. 1 Timothy talks about disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness, which has benefit in this life and in the one to come. So it's not that there's not often present benefits, but we don't serve God for that. Because life is so hard, and it's a broken and fallen world, and it's not a cause and effect where if I do this for God, he will do why. That is to invert that. No, it's I'm going I'm to serve you because you deserve it. You're worth it. I love you. I'm grateful for what you've done. And then third, know that God sees your service now and it will not be in vain. He sees it now. Even if nobody else does, even if it's quiet and hidden, he sees and it will not be in vain. We'll end with a verse out of 1 Corinthians 15, 58 where it has a similar idea. It says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, those that are loved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. It's not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray.